please turn in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 11. Matthew chapter 11, and notice the words of our Savior both in prayer and immediately after prayer. Direct your attention to verse 25. At that time, Jesus declared, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and understanding and revealed them to little children. Yes, Father, for such was your gracious will. All things have been handed over to me by my Father, and no one knows the Son except the Father, and no one knows the Father except the Son, and anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal Him. Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me for I am gentle and lowly in heart and you will find rest for your souls for my yoke is easy and my burden is light someone has written without humility Christ will scarcely be detectable in our lives. No matter what our gifts may be, teaching, preaching, writing, organizing, counseling, leading, and no matter how expertly we exhibit them, they are hauntingly hollow without humility. Without humility, others may hear of Christ from us, but they will not see Him in us. He will remain more of a rumor than a reality. If we want Christ to become a public reality in us, we should seek to understand just what humility is and how to cultivate it. It's my heart's desire to bring a series of sermons on the subject of humility for the next several weeks. As it happens in God's providence, I will preach on humility this morning, next Lord's Day, and the next one, and then there will be a break, and then I will come back and preach three more sermons. I want to make a few acknowledgments, and I also want to give a word about my approach to this subject. I want to acknowledge, first of all, sincerely, that I am unqualified to preach a series of sermons on humility. And I don't say that to make you think that I'm humble. I do not think that I'm humble because I know that I am not humble. And I can echo the words of our friend C.J. Mahaney in his helpful little book on humility. We studied that book in our 2008 care groups. I'm going to make his words my words to you this morning, dear brothers and sisters. I simply substitute the word preach 
for His Word right, and the words, these sermons, for His words, this book. So this is what I say to you. Let me make this clear at the outset. I'm a proud man pursuing humility by the grace of God. I don't preach as an authority on humility. I preach as a fellow pilgrim walking with you on the path set for us by our humble Savior. I can only address you with confidence in this great and gracious God who has promised to give grace to the humble. That promise forms the heart of these sermons. And that promise is for every one of us who turns from his or her sins and trusts in the Savior. The second thing I want to acknowledge very briefly is that even if I were spiritually qualified as a man known most for the grace of humility, I couldn't do justice to this subject in only six sermons. In preparation, I have read approximately ten books on the subject, and I've studied scores of passages. It's simply too broad to handle in any exhaustive way in only six sermons. It would be like excavating a five-mile range of mountains filled with gold, but being told that you have to get it all out in six days. Just to illustrate the challenge in my fourth sermon dealing with who are helpful examples, I want in that sermon to look at several individuals from both the Old and New Testaments, Christ being the ultimate example, the one Paul used for the Philippians when he said, Have this mind in you and among you, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who made himself nothing, Some translations say, who emptied himself, taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of man and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. One could easily preach for six weeks just on the humility of our Savior, starting with his incarnation, working through his life, examining His washing of the disciples' feet on the eve of His crucifixion and consummating with His passive obedience upon the cross when He willingly took our sins and our curse upon Himself in order to satisfy the holy wrath of God. But when it comes to Sermon 4 for me, I'm only going to preach one sermon and setting forth several Examples. That's what I mean when I say that this series can in no way be exhaustive. A third acknowledgement. Because it is impossible to preach on the virtue of humility without dealing with its opposite vice, pride, at times you will think these sermons are on pride. It's like trying to preach on diligence without addressing laziness cannot really understand the one without the other. So, expect that to happen. Now, a word about my approach. Please look again at the front of the flyer 
that I trust you found in the song sheet. Sorry for uh, no bulletins today. We had some computer problems. Now, I just want to ask very quickly, is there anyone here, any adult or let's say high schooler on up who does not have one of these? If, if so, okay, if you guys would just come down here and hold your hands up real high. We're being a little informal. Uh, the same is being offered to our brothers and sisters in the overflow room. I just want everyone to have one of these. Just keep your hand up. Next week, be sure to get a bulletin because uh, hopefully you will find a similar flyer in it. Thanks, brothers, for helping. I'd like to ask you to look at the front, the color side of it. And thanks to Jeremy Bennett for, Bennett for his great, talented, sacrificial work for us always. I want you to notice my simple outline. I'm asking and answering six questions. All of them begin with either a what, where, why, who, when, or how. I'm not going to read them all right now. You can see what this morning's sermon is going to be about. There is a reason and a logic for my order, and I hope that will become clear. But notice the subtitle. I've said humility is a stunning facet in the diamond of Christian virtue. Many of the men I've read have said, like Calvin, that humility is the most fundamental, primary virtue in the Christian life. I'm hesitant to say that. I think perhaps that's theologically careless. Where does that put faith? Where does that put love? Jesus said, by this shall all men know that you are my disciples. Not by your humility, but by your love for one another. But I am certain of this, that humility is one of the most vital, leading virtues of the Christian. And so I'm safe in saying it is a stunning facet. And I want you to think of Christian virtue and Christian saving grace as a diamond that is beautiful from many respects, which by the grace of God produces in our lives many virtues that are beautiful, that are attractive, that are stunning. And one of the most beautiful virtues, one of the most stunning facets in the diamond of Christian virtue is humility. And then I want to point out as well, by way of just speaking of my approach, this is obviously going to be a topical series of sermons. I'm going to undergird and I trust illuminate this topic by many texts and portions of Scripture, which in fact teach what I'm going to say about humility. Topical preaching is a legitimate form of preaching, as long as it's not the only kind of preaching that we do around here, and as long as the truths taught on any given topic really do come from the Scriptures. And if you will just turn that over now and look on the back side for a moment, you will notice that I'm going to make a concerted effort to be practical and helpful to all of you. At the top, you will normally find quotes. Today it happens to be a definition. In the middle, there will be some room, a small amount of room for notes, And at the bottom, I'm going to give you questions, questions for further thought and discussion and questions that you parents can give to your children and ask them, perhaps even at the 
dinner table when you go home, or at least during the week. This is my effort. And I would encourage you, Mom and Dad, to think of other questions that could be a follow-up on what we consider together. And then, please, feel free to give the flyer to a friend. Invite him or her to join us for upcoming weeks. I will do my best, by God's help, to be clear without being shallow, to be theologically solid without being unduly complex. And remember to direct your friends to our website so that they can hear any sermons that they have missed. And then one final word about my approach. Every week, at some time in the sermon, usually probably toward the end, even if it doesn't seem to fit the sermon, I'm going to identify some tangible way in which humility applies to the life of Heritage Baptist Church. Some area in which we need to become individually and corporately more humble. So look for it and welcome it and join me in praying that all of us, starting with the pastors and working on down through the congregation, will become measurably, discernibly, visibly more humble. And the reason I'm going to insert one of those in every sermon is because I don't want to have just one sermon with all of the applications. So if you say, well, I don't see the, how that exactly fits in what you study today, relax and just ask whether or not it's an area of humility that we all need to work on. So, let's jump into the study. This morning I'm going to seek to answer the question, what is humility? And I'm going to uh, <clears throat> draw a little help from I'm going to call to witness a good old theologian, and he's going to give us his shot at what humility is. His name is Jonathan Edwards. He puts it like this. Evangelical humiliation, he uses the word humiliation, because you see, before you can get humility, God has to humiliate you in a sense. Evangelical humiliation is a sense that a Christian has of his own insufficiency, despicableness, and odiousness with an answerable frame of heart. (laughs) How do you like to be called despicable? How do you like to be called insufficient? What about odious? Children, odious means something that really, really stinks bad. You don't hear that word much, but if you smelled something, for example, that had been decomposing on the road, you would just say, oh, that's horrible. Oh, I don't want to smell that. And you'd get away and try to breathe some fresh air because it's odious. And Jonathan Edwards says that in the process of making Christians, God so humbles them that they have a sense of their own utter insufficiency, despicableness, and odiousness. And then he adds this, with an answerable frame of heart. And what he means by an answerable frame of heart is that it's not just something in your head. It, it changes your whole attitude and your disposition and your emotion about yourself and about life and about God. And if there isn't a suitable answerable frame of heart, according to Edwards. Whatever you have, it isn't evangelical. It isn't saving humility. Let me read just a few more words of Edwards. 
He says, such people see their own odiousness on account of sin. They do not see the hateful nature of sin without God's grace. A sense of this is given in evangelical humiliation by a discovery of the beauty of God's holiness and moral perfection. This disposition is given only in evangelical humiliation by overcoming the heart and changing its inclinations by a discovery of God's holy beauty. In evangelical humiliation, they are brought, such people are brought voluntarily to deny and to renounce themselves in the former. They are, he's talking there about humiliation that's not from God. I won't read that. In evangelical humiliation, they are brought sweetly to yield and freely with delight to prostrate themselves at the feet of God. That's some of what Edwards has said. And I've been so blessed in all of the reading that I've done. I'm not sure that any reading has been more helpful and beneficial than the words of Jonathan Edwards. But for a modern author, this is what our friend Wayne Mack says, and this is his effort at defining it. It says, Humility then consists in an attitude wherein we recognize our own insignificance and unworthiness before God and attribute to Him the supreme honor, praise, prerogatives, rights, privileges, worship, devotion, authority, submission, and obedience that He alone deserves. It also involves a natural habitual tendency to think and behave. Notice that? To think and behave in a matter that appropriately expresses this attitude. In other words, the attitude of humility is always seen in humble actions. It means having a servant's mindset and always putting self last. That's what Wayne Mack says. And so, let me just direct your attention to my feeble effort to define humility. Most of the definitions didn't seem to be comprehensive. And so I sought to define it myself. I found it very helpful, at least for me. And I know it isn't comprehensive either, and I know it isn't satisfying. However, I trust it might be helpful, so I humbly submit it to you. I'm defining it in a more lengthy way this way. True humility is an attitude and behavior that reflects a continual dependence upon and submission to God as our Creator, Provider, and Redeemer. It is also a joyful recognition that the gifts, graces, and usefulness of others are superior to our own. They may not actually be, but we feel that they are. I'm just going to insert that. Obviously, if they are superior to ours, then then they couldn't embrace this statement because they have to say no. But that's my point. The attitude is when you look at other people's gifts and graces and usefulness, you truly feel that theirs are superior to yours. That's a part of humility. And I go on to say it meekly acknowledges that anything truly good in us is entirely due to the grace of God. And that is the way, and that the way we are treated by both God and men is far better than we deserve. Be careful... I, I don't know, I, I, you know, who knows who started this. Dave Ramsey, of course, is famous for it, and lots of people say it, and it's a good statement. 
But be careful. It's becoming very casual. Better than I deserve, brother. You better feel that. And if you say it too frequently, you probably won't feel it. But truly, when God brings things into our lives and when other people bring things into our lives that are difficult and challenging and hurtful, we still have warrant to say, I still am being treated better than I deserve because any place outside of hell itself is better than I deserve. Every one of us this morning should be screaming with the doomed and the damned. And so whatever happens to us is better than we deserve. And then I just gave a very simple definition, perhaps helpful to children. It's looking upon God and others highly and ourselves lowly. So the key words in my definition are true humility, because there's a humility that isn't true in savings, saving, and the word attitude and behavior, because it produces an attitude and it produces a behavior, and the words dependence and submission are key words, and so forth. You see what you think the key words are in that definition for you. Now, what I want you to notice in the definition, at least in mine, is that there there are sort of three directions in which this humility manifests itself, sort of three dimensions. If you want to think of it as a fountain that sends out something beautiful in three different directions, if you want to think of it as arteries uh, that go out from the heart to different parts of the body and even some of them back to the heart, then think of it in those ways. But first and foremost, there is an upward dimension in humility. And that's why I said it is an attitude and behavior that reflects a continual dependence upon and submission to God. And specifically to God as creator and provider and redeemer. And then if you notice my second sentence, it has to do with the outward dimension. It says it is also a joyful recognition that the gifts and graces and usefulness of others and it ends by an inward reflection, a direction, the last sentence. Everything good in me is from God, and I'm always getting better than what I deserve. I want to just open those three things for us this morning, and that's all I'm going to do. Let me comment. Let me show you how these things work experientially. The first thing that happens when God makes someone humble is He shows them something of His own glory and their own undoneness, their own wretchedness, their own insufficiency, to use Edward's word, their own despicableness, their own odiousness, that is, by nature. That's where it begins. It begins with recognizing God as Creator. It continues continues by producing in that person a sense of their desperate need for salvation in Christ. But it starts with God. He who was once viewed as our enemy comes to be seen and trusted and loved as our gracious, glorious, sovereign, triune God. Seeing something of His glory and beauty overwhelms the soul. And such a sight causes us to see ourselves in a whole new light. That's the first thing I want you to see. 
You'll never see yourself properly until you see something of the glory of God. That's what Edward was saying. And he was focusing on the beauty of God's holiness. You will never know who you are and what you are until you see who God is and what He is. But when He shows you who He is and and the glory of His being, it will inevitably, if He does this in a gracious way, show you something of who you are. And that's the order. We must see something of the glory of God. And when you go through the Scriptures and see those who had this experience, inevitably it produced humility in them. When Moses wanted to see the glory of God, in effect God said, yes, I'll show you my glory, but we'll have to do this carefully or kill you. Moses saw the glory of God. And Exodus 34 says, Moses quickly bowed his head toward the earth and worshipped. When Isaiah saw God sitting upon His throne, high and lifted up, he said, Woe is me! For I am lost, for I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For mine eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. When Peter saw something of the glory of Christ when he was in the boat, and Jesus just pulled the veil back a little bit to show him something of His omniscience and something of His omnipotence, and He caused a great sum of fish to be caught in the net so that the boat almost sank. When Peter saw the glory of his Savior, we read in Luke, he fell down at Jesus' knees saying, Depart from me, for I am a sinful man, O Lord. When John the Apostle saw his risen glorified Savior by way of vision on the Isle of Patmos, he tells us, When I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. That's what happens when people see the glory of God. And that is the way God begins to make us humble. And I'm going to turn you to one such illustration, having mentioned those. Will you now turn with me in your Bibles to Job chapter 40? And we'll see the illustration of how God made Job humble. Though he was a godly man, this is one of those refresher courses on humility. But the point is, the method of God making us humble is the same, whether it is the initial experience of our salvation or subsequent experiences in our Christian lives. You remember all of these men were spewing off and giving their opinion as to what really was happening and why it was happening. And in chapter 38, God says, Now you've all talked enough. It's time for me to talk. And He begins to ask questions, particularly of Job. And in chapter 38, He asks 26 questions. And in chapter 39, He asks 16 questions, which comes to 42. And He pauses in the middle of His lecture, so to speak. And Job cannot help but blurt out in verse 3, verse 4, Behold, I am of small account. What shall I answer you? I lay my hand on my mouth. I have spoken once and I will not answer twice, but I will proceed no further. Job is beginning to become profoundly humble by the questions that God is raising. And the questions especially point to His majesty and His glory and His creative power and His attributes. But it's as if God says, I'm not quite done, Job. I have more to say to you. And so, in chapter 41, or 40 and 41, 
he asked more questions. In 40, he asked six questions. In 41, he asked 14 questions. A total of 20 more, which totals 62. And at the end of the process, notice chapter 42, what happens? Then Job answered the Lord and said, I know you can do all things and that no purpose of yours can be thwarted. You ask, who is this that hides counsel without knowledge? It was me, God. Therefore, I have uttered what I did not understand, things too wonderful for me which I did not know. God says, hear, and I will speak. I will question you, and you make it known to me. And then Job says this, I had heard of you by the hearing of the ear, but now my eye sees you. Therefore, I despise myself and repent in dust and ashes. Are you mad at Jonathan Edwards for using the word despicable, odious? Then you must be angry with Job as well, but that's how he felt. And to one degree or another, if we are ever to be made humble, truly, savingly humble, God must show us who He is, and in the showing us who He is, we begin to see who we are. And we begin to feel like Job. We want to put our hands on our mouths. And we see the need to repent in dust and ashes. And the beautiful thing about this, dear people, is it's an ongoing experience in the Christian life. And it's one that we can seek for and wait for and pray for. And you can be sure that if you ask God to help you be more humble, He will. Because He wants us to be more humble. But you understand that saving humility begins with a sight of God which produces a knowledge of ourselves. And once we truly see God's glory, and once we begin to see how undone and wretched and desperate we are, then, then, the gospel becomes glorious and it becomes wonderful. And then, by the grace of God, the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God, shines in our hearts to give us this knowledge. And we go to a new degree of humility before our Savior. And isn't it wonderful that God's method of salvation was designed to not only to make us humble, but to keep us humble. Everything about it. I think it was Pastor Sam who preached on this. I'm not sure, but if you would turn back to 1 Corinthians 1, I just want to remind you of this in verse 26. Did you do something with this passage uh, several months ago or uh, within a year? Am I dreaming? Yeah. And in chapter 1, notice verse 26. Paul is reminding his readers how blessed, how privileged they were, how unworthy they were to be counted among the people of God. He says, for consider your calling. That would be that powerful work of God's Spirit bringing the sinner To the Savior, brothers, not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were noble of noble birth. But God chose. I want to underscore those two words. God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. 
God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are so that... Listen to this. This, I think, was the thrust of the message. This is God's design in the Gospel. So that no human being might boast in the presence of God. He is the source of your life in Christ Jesus, whom God made our wisdom and so forth. Look at that verse 29 again. So that no human being might boast in the presence of God. When God shows us His glory, when God shows us our undoneness, when God shows us beauty in the person of Christ and brings us to Him by His grace, we are persuaded of one thing. I have no grounds to boast about anything. It's all of grace. This is how God makes His people humble. And I have to be careful because, really, that's next week's sermon. Where does it originate? But I can't really show you what it is without showing you where it originates. It is a coming to a sense of overwhelming undoneness in the sight of this God who is infinitely glorious. And seeing Him cannot but make me see myself. And this is what I want you to see. And when you see who you are, you cannot easily look upon other people as worse than you. You start seeing other people as better than you. Now we need help. And we have to be told by the Apostle Paul, as he told the Philippians first, that we need to look on the other person as more significant, as better than ourselves. And we do have to work on it. But God gives us a wonderfully gracious head start because when He shows us how bad off we really are in and of ourselves, it's hard for us to believe that other people are worse than us. It's really hard. And I just want to insert this as a little bit of an application to you. If it's not hard for you to think of other people as worse than yourselves, yourself, you really, really need to question if you have come to an understanding of who you are. We need to feel what the Apostle Paul felt in the text that Mark preached from last week. Paul said, I am the chief of sinners. Get all of the sinners in the world and all of the sinners in history together. And when it's all of the competition is over, I'm going to win. As the chief of sinners, I'm the worst of sinners. And then later, in another place, he writes to one of the churches, the church in Ephesus, and says, by the way, I am also the least of all the saints. Wait a minute. All the saints? All the saints? Yes. Where do you find yourself with regard to the saints? Well, as the chief of sinners, in terms of who and what I was before I was converted, but as the least of saints after conversion. Now, Paul, you can't really believe that. 
You were such a righteous man. Dear people, God showed him his heart. And God showed him his heart by showing him his glory. And when you and I see the glory of God, God the Creator, I'm just going to say this, no one can be humble who does not come to see that God is their Creator. The doctrine of evolution, the teaching of evolution, is designed by the devil to keep men proud. And that's why they suppress the truth in their unrighteousness, because they know better than that, but they don't want to deal with it, because when you deal with it, it makes you uncomfortable. But when God graciously helps you to deal with it, and you see Him as, first of all, Creator, and then the God of providence, and then the God of redemption, down you go. It makes you humble. No person who refuses to see God as Creator could ever possibly be humble. But God shows us that. And then in the process, He shows us how desperately we need a Savior. And His method of salvation shows us over and over and over that it's all of grace and that we can take no credit to ourselves. And from that point on, dear people, we see ourselves as less than others. Now, we have to keep dealing with pride, but I'm saying God puts within us this wonderful grace which gives us a great head start at viewing others as better than ourselves. Listen to what an old writer, he was a Welshman in the late 1700s, said. He wrote this in a letter. He said, A spirit truly humbled before God will infallibly show itself in a conduct towards man that is humble and unassuming. And when it does not so, it is only pretended. If therefore our pretensions to humility before God be unaccompanied with a suitable behavior towards one another, they are wholly vain. If we are still stubborn inferiors, haughty superiors, and self-willed equals, it is evident that our proud hearts have never been truly humbled and that our religion is no, of no value. True humility is known by its fruit. A servant of Christ, however highly distinguished by gifts and graces, thinks very humbly of himself and deeply feels what he expresses when he says, I am nothing. And when a man truly says this, he will naturally esteem others better than himself. And consequently, he will not despise a weak brother. That's what Thomas Charles said. And I find that very, very convicting. So do you, do you follow me? Are you with me? Let me just recap. Let me try to make this real simple. The sermon is, what is humility? And I'm saying humility is this sense of how inadequate I am, how wretched I am, how despicable I am in the sight of an infinitely gloriously holy God and how desperately I need His grace and mercy in Christ. And having found it, I cannot but 
look upon others as better than myself. And I cannot help but look upon myself as always having better than I deserve. That's what it is. I'm just trying to make it really simple. It's an attitude. It's a behavior. It's a disposition. And it demonstrates itself. It demonstrates itself vertically toward God and horizontally toward one another and even toward ourselves as we see ourselves and think about ourselves. That's why I said there are those three dimensions. Now the question that I want to ask you is, have you yet come to see yourself in the light of God? One way to tell is by what you think of yourself. What you think of yourself apart from Christ, of course. Maybe it would be helpful for me just to insert a word of encouragement here. I don't want you who are clothed in the perfect righteousness of Christ to go out of here today disheartened, downcast. You know, just I'm just a worm. I'm just a creature of the dust. I, 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 I want you to think that way, and I want myself to think that way, in terms of what we are by nature apart from God's grace. And I want us to see that even those of us who are totally forgiven of all of our sins have so much sin in us, such a lack of love for God, that we have every reason to remain and actually to grow in our humility. But I also want you to rejoice in your perfect righteousness from Christ if in fact He is your only hope and you are looking to Him and you are clothed in His righteousness. You need to have both a sense of profound humility and overwhelming joy that Christ is your Savior. But having the overwhelming joy in your perfect forgiveness in Christ shouldn't make you no longer aware of who you really are in and of yourself apart from God. And so there's a balance there, dear people, and we need to keep it. If I may just quote Edwards one more time, he says, the nature, now just see if you can follow this, okay? This is, maybe this will be the most challenging thing that I put before you before I conclude my sermon today. The nature of true grace and spiritual light opens to a person's view the infinite reason there is that he should be holy in a high degree. The more grace he has, the greater sense he has of the infinite excellency and glory of the divine being, the infinite dignity of the person of Christ, and the boundless length and breadth and depth and height of the love of Christ to sinners. And as grace increases and the field opens more and more to a distant view until the soul is swallowed up with the vastness of the object. The person is astonished to think how much it becomes him to love this God and this glorious Redeemer who has loved man and how little he does love. And so the more he apprehends, the more the smallness of his grace and love appears and therefore is more ready to think that others are beyond him. Wondering at the littleness of his own grace, he can scarcely believe that so strange a thing happens to other saints. It is amazing to him that one who is really a child of God and who has actually received the saving benefits of this unspeakable love of Christ should love him so little. Isn't it an amazing thing? The more you grow in grace, 
The more you grow in the knowledge of God, the more humble you become. That's the way it should be working. Now, the devil has a way of coming in and dealing with our deceitful hearts and puffing us up and saying, look how much you know. Look how great your gifts are. Look how superior you are to other people. And that's always a lie because the truth is, the more we know about God, what really should be happening is the lower we go, the lower we go. I say, oh God, you're, you're a thousand times more glorious than I thought you were. And now when I look at my little love for you and my small preoccupation with you, I am just so disappointed with myself. How can I be proud to grow in the grace and knowledge of you and not love you more and more and more and more and more? Well, we can and we should and we must. And that's the hope that I put before you even in this series. Because didn't we see some weeks ago, and we will see it again, that while God resists the proud, listen, the other side of that fearful coin is very comforting Turn it over because it says while he resists the proud, he gives grace to the humble. And so the more humble we are, the more grace we find. And the more grace we find from God, the more humble we become. And it's a beautiful cycle. And that's what I want this church to move toward. That's what I want myself to move toward. That's what we all need. And so I ask you, have you come to see yourself in the light of God? Have you come to see others? in the light of yourself. What is my application to heritage? My application to heritage is that we need to grow in this grace of humility. I think we have some pride issues. I have some pride issues. And if you don't think you have any pride issues, you do have some pride issues. And I think one of the things that we want to be careful about, and I know this is your heart's desire, and this is certainly the heart's desire of our pastors, is that we as a church not have a proud attitude toward other churches or other denominations or other movements or, for that matter, even other theologians who are not where we are. Do I think that Reformed Baptists Hold the purest forms and expressions of biblical truth? Yes, without any hesitation. I truly believe that. Pastor Sam is teaching a course based upon our confession of faith, which is just formulation statements that are trying to grasp what the Word of God teaches, and they are some of the purest, most solid expressions of biblical truth anywhere to be found. And if we thought there was a better confession and a better expression, we would choose it. I don't know of a denomination that is more orthodox and pure. Now that sounds arrogant, but I don't say it in an arrogant way. It's a confession. I'm making a statement. I don't know of one. And none of us do. And if we did, we would we would change ours and become purer. But you see, therein lies the temptation. We have this wonderful truth. We have this wonderful theology. And we are 
tempted sometimes to look down upon those who don't understand what we don't understand or who disagree with what we teach. And so sort of, you know, like, well, it's too bad that you're still in the dark. And that's what we cannot have. We must not have that attitude corporately, individually or corporately. And the only way we can have it corporately is if we have it individually. So I'm asking every one of you to look into your own heart. I look into my own heart. Do, are you proud about the superiority of your theology? Look, I'm admitting this theology is superior to, to theology that's in error. It is superior. Okay? Because it's truth. But we must not have a feeling or an attitude or an aura or an environment of superiority in any way when people come through the doors of our sanctuary and see us and shake our hands and talk to us and listen to us preach and listen to us sing. They, they should say, these people really know what they believe. They're very solid theologically, but they're humble people. They're sweet people. They're dear people. They're kind people. You, you can relate to them. They're not snooty. Your five pastors don't want to be that way and don't want this church to be that way. And so what we have to be careful about is um, something Jonathan pointed out in his blog months ago when he said that we have to be careful about how quickly we get to the but. And what he meant by that is when we say, well, I like him and he's quite good with regard to such and such, but, and it only takes us five seconds to get to the but. How about just starting with it? I don't agree with everything he says, but he's a good man. He's a godly man. He's doing great things. It's a great church. It's a great movement. There's some good things happening there. We can learn from them. And I just want to say to you that, and again, what's that have to do with the sermon on what is humility? Well, it's only indirectly related, but I want to squeeze one of these in every time. This church needs to continue to grow in the grace of humility. We want to lead the way. You pray for us. We need to be humble, genuinely humble. And we want you to be humble. And we want people to think of our church as a humble church. Humble orthodoxy. So that's the application. And I conclude with this then. Dear people, Christ is our hope individually and corporately. If you're convicted at all about your pride this morning, and I am convicted about my pride, just studying this stuff these last several weeks has been its been pretty devastating in a good way. It's been pretty devastating. And I've had to pray a lot of times, and I've had to search my heart and repent of garbage. And i got a lot of garbage to repent of. We all need to repent of whatever garbage there is in our lives. But the the encouragement is this. Jesus Christ humbled Himself to deal with our pride. <laughs> he humbled Himself to make us humble. He wants us to be humble. That's why I read the passage. Learn of Me, He says to Heritage Baptist Church, for I am gentle and lowly of heart. And His atonement makes a perfect payment for all of our pride. So what we got to do is run to the Savior this morning and just say, Jesus, 
there's just enough pride in me to send me to hell this second. They'll split it wide open. Oh, Jesus, thank you for emptying yourself and for humbling yourself to become obedient to death, even the death of the cross. Because part of what you did on that cross was bear the wrath of God for my pride. My pride. Jesus, thank you. You're my hope. You're my Savior. And I want to learn from you. And I want to be like you. That's where salvation starts. And that's where sanctification continues. And may God grant it to this church. Let's pray. Father in heaven, you know all of our hearts and you know the heart of this wretched, weak, insufficient, inadequate preacher. You know and I confess to you in the presence of these people that I am unconsciously, frequently wanting to preach well on humility so that people will think better of me. That is how wretched my heart and our hearts are. We can actually preach sermons on humility out of a motive of pride. God, help us. Our hearts are deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. Thank you, Lord Jesus for having a perfectly pure heart when you lived in our place and died for us. Lord Jesus, help us corporately and individually to learn of you and to become like you. May this series of sermons, weak in its presentation as it surely will be, may they be used by the Holy Spirit to make each of us individually and all of us collectively humble. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.